Tonight we're in the book of Deuteronomy. That's if you um, want to follow along, you should turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you, if you notice, there's just a couple chapters left and the last chapter is only 12 verses. So perhaps by the grace of God, if you pray hard enough, we'll finish this book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, as we see here in the text that you know the end from the beginning. Nothing takes you by surprise or off guard. Being omniscient and being all-loving, you could tell the children of Israel what they were going to experience, how they would fail, and even the punishment you'd bring upon them, but in the end how you'd restore them. What hope that is to us, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would understand these words that Moses gives to the children of Israel, the principles that are in it for our edification. Thank you, Father, once again that your church, your people, the body of Christ is together. Thank you how we're strengthened when we do come together. And Father, we just pray for one another right now, even before we begin our study. That person sitting next to us on the right, we may or may not know them. You not only know them, but you know what they're going through. And I pray that you'd bring them to a place where they trust in you wholeheartedly. Fill them with your joy, a sense of your presence and your peace. And let them know, Lord, that their life is in your hands and you're going to bring whatever they're going through to your completion, your end. Then, Lord, for that person sitting on our left, We pray that you would minister to that person tonight. We pray, Father, that he or she might know the fullness of your will for their lives and experience the joy of an obedient life. Thank you, Lord, that you live because you rose from the dead. And, Lord, thank you that your word is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that as a skilled surgeon tonight, you might do your work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 1960s and the 1970s, there came to be a a technical phenomena in the recording world known as backward masking. Anybody heard of that? That's where the musician would usually consciously encrypt a message so that when you play the record backwards, uh, you would hear that message that you could only hear if you play it backwards. You play it forward and it just goes, and you play it backwards, you go, oh, wow, you put a message in it. It became sort of a fad for groups to put in a backward masking their encrypted notes or messages so that you'd buy the album, listen to it, and then with your finger you'd spin it backwards to get the... uh, and unravel the message. Now, somebody once told me this. Uh, they said, what do you get if you, if you play country music backwards? <laughs> so you get your wife back, you get your children back, you get your dog back, you get your house back. Because so many of the themes in country songs are, woe is me, I've lost it all. My dog bit me, a train ran over me, my wife left me, and everything's topsy-turvy. It's sort of like the constant theme of so much of the country music is what I've lost and how bad it's getting. Well, this chapter is a song that Moses was instructed to write. It's called the Song of Moses, appropriately, though it was a collaborative effort by Joshua and Moses together. It was a song that Moses was commissioned to write before he died. So he's 120 years old and he's a songwriter. He's writing about the history of the nation. It was a song that had to be passed down, not only from Joshua, but throughout the generations for the children of Israel to sing as a reminder of who their God was, what God had done, and where they fit in that puzzle. It's sort of like a country song. It sings the blues in one part of it. Now, it begins with the faithfulness and the glory and the majesty of God, and it ends with the faithfulness of God, but sandwiched in between is the faithlessness of man. 
principally the children of Israel, how they would fail, what would happen to them as God would seek to sell them into the hand of their enemies, but not completely, but that God would bring them back. So we have in chapter 23 a song, the song of Moses, passed down to the new generation before they crossed the land of God's dealing with the children of Israel and their failure, etc. Now, as we mentioned last week, you can see there's several verses to this song. 43 is where the song ends, so there's 43 verses. These were verses that were memorized by the children of Israel. How many of you have memorized this chapter? Raise your hand. I haven't either. But if you lived back then, you would be required to, because much of the information was not read. They didn't have books like we have them. Moses didn't go into a Xerox machine and copy the words of the song and say, keep this in a safe place until we sing it next year. They didn't have computers, so you couldn't get Moses' song 4.0 CD-ROM to slip into your laptop. You had to memorize things like this. Truth was often passed on by rehearsing or by singing, whether it was a poem, a song, a legend, or a piece of history. The pattern of this song is in it's called an RIB pattern. It's in a, it's in a legal controversy pattern. It, it's set in a format that would bring an indictment against the children of Israel. That's how the song was formed because of the failures of the children of Israel. Uh, verse 23 will sort of explain, and we'll read down to verse 27 first. I will heap disasters upon them. That's where we left off last week. I will spend my arrows upon them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured with pestilence, and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror on the inside or within. For the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs, I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high. And it is not the Lord who has done all of this. To begin this song in verse 23 is sort of uh, uh, unfortunate, but since we began last week with verse 1, that's why we're starting it. We're not doing this just to start with the bad news because, again, it begins with who God is. He's faithful. He's majestic. And then it ends with that same theme. Again, in the middle is what will happen to the children of Israel, uh, how they would be uh, following some of the nations around them and get involved in some of the pagan worship uh, as their forefathers. It mentions that in verses 15 through 18. They would forget the rock of Israel who brought them. Uh, and yet it ends with God's faithfulness. It's a record of a rebellion, and at the same time, God's faithfulness. Now, God talks about the disasters that will come upon them, but he said, I, verse 26, I would have said I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men, had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high, and it's not the Lord who has done all this. God is saying... You're going to have mischief. He already said that verse, or chapter 27, 28, 29. I'll sell you into the hands of your enemies. Here in poetic form, Moses is saying for the Lord, I will not completely destroy the children of Israel. They will suffer, but I won't make an end. And we really have to piece all of the verses of Deuteronomy together to understand the full reason why God says, I won't destroy them completely. Number one, God made a promise to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, that they would have the land, that they would occupy the land forever. It was a covenant that was unconditional. And God remembers his promises, even if he made them with people way back when. He already brought that up in Deuteronomy. I made a promise to Abraham. I'm going to fulfill it. Secondly, because of the taunts of the enemy, that's mentioned here. If God were to just say, okay, you have sinned so much, I am now justified in wiping you out, and I'm just going to destroy you from off the face of the earth. Then the enemies of Israel, like Egypt, like Moab, like Edom, like Assyria, would say, see, 
These guys trusted in a God that doesn't exist. God didn't do any of what he said he would do. There really is no God. And thirdly, and it's implied in the same text, God's reputation is on the line. And oftentimes, whether we are faithful or not, God will fulfill his promise simply because it's his reputation that's on the line. So that men in the end will say, man, God is faithful. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, even if we deny him, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we're faithless, he still remains faithful. And I love that verse because how many times are we faithless? And a lot of times we think, God, I I haven't been faithful to you lately. And because I haven't been faithful, surely you're not going to bless me. And then you round the corner and there's this big package waiting for you from God. And you say, God, why did you bless me? I didn't deserve it. That's the whole point. God is faithful to his promise to you as a child of God, even when you are faithless. And so there is security when you're a follower of Jesus Christ. For the believer, there is security in trusting in Jesus Christ. Now, you can be faithless and lose a reward that you would have gotten. But remember when uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he says that our works will be tested, and that our works may or may not pass the test, and yet we will be saved, though as through fire, but we may lose the reward that we would have gotten for a work we would have done if we would have done it either from the heart or in obedience to God. So God rewards us in our obedience, in our works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith through an act of grace. But God will reward us for our works that we do in his name. Well, we might really blow it. We might be faithless. And so we'll lose a reward. But still there is that security of God being faithful even when we're faithless. Verse 28, for they are a nation void of counsel. Now, I, it seems that Moses is speaking of the other nations that were coming against Israel, mentioned in the previous verses, that would bring their taunts against Israel and against God. They are a nation void of counsel. Nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise and they understood this. That they would consider their latter end How could one chase a thousand and put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and cruel venom of cobras." Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and all the things to come hasten upon them. Israel's enemies, as they come upon her, as they bring taunts against Israel and against the God of Israel, God is saying, don't worry, I hear them, I see them. I'll punish them, I'll be patient with them, but there will come a time when my patience will run out and you can be sure that vengeance is mine. I will act on behalf of the children of Israel even when it's almost at the wire, when it seems like it's too late. And vengeance is mine and recompense is a verse that Paul the Apostle quotes in Romans chapter 12, remember? He says in Romans 12, Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He's speaking about the tendency we have to forget that God is in charge when our enemies lash out against us. The human nature to get even. That person wronged me. He shouldn't have wronged me. I'm going to get back at him. She said something I don't like. I've got something just to push her button, and boom, you lash out. God says, now remember, and Paul reiterates it, give place to wrath. Give place to God's wrath. Don't take vengeance for yourself. Give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. Leave it with the Lord. How difficult is that for you to do? 
how easier it would be if we could just get it over with and give that person a tongue lashing or a smack in the face because they deserve it rather than just saying, you know what? A soft answer turns away wrath. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I heard of a young son. Well, a mother was walking by the bedroom of her young son, and she heard him scream. He just, at the top of his lungs, yikes! She ran in the room and saw the little boy's little sister pulling at his hair. Now, he was nine, ten years old, and she was just a couple years old, a toddler, and she's yanking his hair, and mother rushes over and takes the hand gently from off her son's head and says, Now, son, she's so young, she does not know that it hurts. She's too young to understand. She doesn't know that it hurts you. And then she left the room, and no sooner did she leave the room and go around the bend, she heard the little girl screaming out. Yeah! And she came in, and her little son said, Now she knows. Ever since we were kids, we learned that it's just easier to get revenge rather than just trust the Lord. And, and by the way, it's for this reason that God gave the lex talionis in the Old Testament. Lex talionis is the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It wasn't to permit vengeance as much as to limit vengeance. Because when somebody knocks out a tooth, we think, you knocked out my tooth, I'm going to take your whole upper section out. You knocked out an eye, I'm going to take both your eyes. We have the tendency to go overboard. And so the lex talionis was a law imposed socially in the legal courts so that the punishment would fit the crime rather than exceed the crime. And on a personal level and a national level, he is saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees their power is gone, isn't that interesting? God will have compassion when you're at the end of yourself. You have no power. You fought the fight and you're losing, it seems like, and the, the provision is all gone and you're sinking fast. And for some reason, it's then we start praying. We didn't pray at the beginning because we thought, I've got enough energy, I think I've got a plan, I've got a strategy, and it didn't work. And then when our strategies fail, oh, God, help! We cry out, and God is there. He sees the power is gone. There is no one remaining bond or free. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he. There is no God besides me. In this chapter and in the previous chapters, have you noticed the comparison between the God and all the other gods? Remember God said last week we read, when you pray to these gods of other nations, you're really praying to demons. They're really not gods. Behind them is a demonic force. I'm the only God, he says. I'm the only true God. I'm the only one who alone is in charge of history, in charge of nations. And God makes that bold declaration. I am he, besides me there is no others. I have noticed in the scripture that God is pleased to present himself rather than try to prove himself. The Bible doesn't begin with, here is the proof of God. Just as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's assumed that people will know innately as they look around at the design of creation, as they have the conscience of man, they will say there is a God. None of the biblical authors seek to prove God. They simply assume God. In fact, they get to the point in Psalms where they say it's the fool that has said in his heart there is no God. But God just states himself. He presents himself rather than trying to prove himself. And I have people who have said to me, you can't prove there's a God. And I always concede, you're right, I can't prove there's a God. I've got evidence that there is a God. But if you mean it in the absolute empirical sense in a test tube, can you prove there's God? In that sense, no. But you can't prove there isn't. But there is far more evidence that God exists than that he doesn't exist. 
And when you examine the evidence, you have to be a fool to live your life without God. There was a very simple preacher. In fact, he was a Quaker. He preached in the old style with these and thous and hithers and thithers, but just believed God, and he was preaching. And as he was preaching back in the East, out in the country, a man who claimed to be an atheist, an empiricist, walked by and wanted to challenge the Quaker. And while the Quaker was preaching about God and judgment and heaven and hell, the atheist said, Excuse me, have you ever seen God, sir? The Quaker said, Nay. That's how they said no. I see. Well, have you ever felt God? Tangibly felt God? Nay. Well, have you ever smelled God? He's trying to go through the senses. Nay. Have you ever tasted God? Nay. Well, how do you know that there even is a God? The crowd looked to see what the Quaker would say. He said, Sir, hast thou ever seen thine brain? No. Hast thou ever smelt thy brain? No. Hast thou ever felt thy brain? No. Well, how dost thou know that thou even hast a brain? God says, I'm God. There aren't any other gods besides me. It's not like we're having a competition battle of the gods. I'm it. All the other ones are demons. They're false gods. There's only one true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he states that. And let me tell you this. You'll never find rest in your own soul till you come to grips with that issue. You come to grips with there's only one God who made you, who loves you, who has a plan for you. You'll never really be at rest until you settle the issue of who is God, why am I here, those big questions that all the alien movies are seeking to answer. Augustine said, Lord, we are restless until we find our rest in thee. We're, we're restless souls until we come to grips with God and the fact that God made us and he loves us. Then he says something very interesting that probably we'd all like to just skip over, but we can't because it's in the Bible. God says, there's no other besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. I wonder how many of us have that underlined. I wonder how many from the faith movement have that underlined. I wound, I heal, I kill, I make alive. Now, whatever you do with that theologically, at least we must understand that God assumes a level of responsibility. In fact, just to reinforce that, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 4, the second book of the Bible. Something similar is stated by God. And he's speaking this time to Moses, and Moses is trying to make excuses that he can't serve God or be a representative of God to the children of Israel in front of Pharaoh because he has a speech impediment. Moses, verse 10 of Exodus 4, said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now, immediately, when we read that verse, our hearts are somewhat set at odds with God. We're uncomfortable with that. It challenges our whole concept of God. And it's important that we understand that today we do live in a world that doesn't represent the will or the heart of God. The disease, the death, the tragedy is not what God intended. All of it, indirectly and sometimes directly, is part of the fall and the continual sin of man. Yet there is a level of omnipotence and of sovereign control, and God does assume responsibility. Notice that God doesn't seek to, you know, dance around it or explain himself. He says, look, I made the mouth, I made the mute, I made the blind, 
And then he says, I can heal, heal I can wound, um, I can destroy, back in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. That is a hurdle. That is a problem. Where is a good God when I suffer? Why does God allow? And we've covered that on many, many t- uh, 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 other um, occurrences. Let me not deal with that issue since we've dealt with it so much. But let me just say this. Once you get past that hurdle, your faith is unshakable. If you stop at that hurdle, you're shaken. You, you, you don't know, am, am I going to last? Am I going to stay? Am I going to believe? Once you get past the hurdle of that, you see, it's easy to say, I have faith in God when everything's great. It doesn't take faith, it just takes sight. But in the midst of a disease or a malady, to look and say, I know God loves me, I trust in God like Job, though you slay me, I will trust you. That's faith. That's unshakable faith. And I've seen the unshakable faith of some. I've stood before deathbeds of people who didn't seek to ask why, just, I love my Jesus. I don't know what he's doing, but he's got a plan, and soon I'll be with him in heaven. Unshakable faith. But I've also seen people stop at that hurdle. And they're like water, a buoy bouncing up and down, nothing stable, like the wind tossing to and fro. Now back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 40, For I lift my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and captives from the heads of the leaders of enmity. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. It's, it's a picture of God at the end here as a warrior, with a glittering sword, the fact that none can escape because it says here, I will re- make my arrows drunk with blood. In other words, none can escape. And so it's a preview. It's a picture of, of coming vengeance, coming judgment. Now we know there are different places in the Bible, even in the New Testament, where judgment is promised by Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, it's portrayed. And so we'll be reading along And then we'll come to this place where God promises to judge the heaven and the earth. And again, some people have real problem with that. The best way to view that is if God said it, it's going to happen. And if God said it, how am I going to be prepared for it? God will one day judge the heavens and the earth. Jesus will one day return to the earth. He's pictured in the 19th chapter of Revelation as one who comes with a sword to judge the heavens, to judge the earth. What will you do to prepare for it? Remember how Peter put it, seeing that all these things, the elements, will be dissolved, what manner of person ought we to be in all holy conduct? If the earth isn't going to last, if Jesus Christ will come back and the earth will be judged, then I should, the smartest thing I should do is turn from what I know is not God's will, it's called repentance, and follow him. That's how I prepare. I follow in his footsteps. I ask him to forgive my sin. I follow his will. Have you done that? Have you prepared for the inevitable? It's coming. Are you ready for the inevitable? Have you turned to Jesus Christ? Have you given him your life? Have you asked him to wash all of your sins? God says it's coming. I do meet people who say, well, I haven't uh, yet, but I will later. Well, when when is I? I don't know, but I'm just not ready yet. I'm too young. I'm a teenager. I I have a lot of life to live. You know, this stuff is for people who don't have much life left. But I've got plans. I I, want to sow my wild oats. I've got friends, and my friends would think I'm goofy if I came to Christ. Later on, when I'm in maybe middle age and you settle down, you have your own kids, that's when you want to take them to Sunday school anyway. So I just want to have fun. So you talk to them if they get the chance in their middle age. Say, remember years ago in high school, you put it off, and 
here we are at our reunion now, and you've got a couple little kids, and are you ready to receive Christ? Well, you know, I'm busy, and... Uh, Got a lot of stuff going on. I couldn't really make that kind of a choice now because um, I really couldn't, you know, live up to my commitment because I am so busy. I'd hate to commit something to God and not be able to follow through anyway. So, you know, I'm a man of my word. I wouldn't dare give my life to Jesus and not follow through. But, but later on when I'm old, and so you see them perhaps when they're old, and you're old too by this time, and you say, what about now? And they go, well... I'm too set in my ways. Again, I'm not going to say what age old is. Just to say we have a tendency to put it off till later, and sometimes later will never come. I meet people all the time who will say, I'll have a deathbed conversion. You may never have a deathbed. You may never have the luxury to lay in a bed and think about your life. You may, it may come to an end instantly, quickly. And then after this, the judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die. There was a famous rabbi who had his disciples around him. They were talking about sin and repentance, and they said, Rabbi, what's the best time to repent? When should we? He said, it's always good to repent the last day of your life. And they asked the inevitable question, Rabbi, how could we ever know what day is the last day of our life? He says, that's my point. Repent now. You never know. Always keep short accounts with God. And I would encourage you, if you've never consciously, voluntarily said, Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I give you my life. I want to follow you. You should do it now, today. It may be the last day of your life. It might not. But in view of what is coming, as Peter said, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct, godliness, godly living? Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Now, it's a song of Moses for Israel, but the Gentiles are brought in, and salvation is mentioned. At the end, he will provide atonement for his land and his people, not only by bringing them back, but by sending the Messiah. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel. He said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful. Who God's speaking. <laughs> I want to sing every time I hear, I hear the roaring thunder. <laughs> then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Set your heart on the words. What a difference there is between listening to Scripture and setting your heart on it. Have you been able to tell the difference in people's lives? I've watched a transformation take place in so many students, like in our school of ministry, or people who come here, make a commitment to Christ, and I see them a year, a couple years later after they've studied the Word. The difference between just listening and then setting their hearts on it. It's my life. Paul wrote a letter to a church in Thessalonica. And he said, the word that I spoke to you, you welcomed. The word of God you welcomed and you received it, not as the word of man, but as it is indeed in truth the word of God. You welcomed it as the word of God. Many people I know, many people in churches across this nation, are just that, church attendees, that's it. They come, they attend, they feel good because they go to church. They haven't gone to Christ. They don't set their hearts on the Word. They come to church and listen. And it's sort of like the difference between watching television and doing what's on television. A person might say, yeah, I go to this movie. Was it a good movie? Well, there's... You know, there's a lot of bad stuff in the movie, violence and stuff. 
But, you know, listen, I, I just watch it. It's just entertainment. I'd never do it. I'm detached enough. I watch it. I listen. But I would never do what is depicted on television or those movies. It's just entertaining. It's possible to listen to Scripture the same way. I listen to it. I'd never do what's actually written in the Bible in terms of obeying it. It's entertaining. Come and listen to some Bible studies. It's okay. But I'd never actually put it into practice in my life. See, that's listening versus setting your heart to it. He says it's not a futile thing for you. It is your life. Is it your life? Gallup poll said only 25% of all people in our country who say they're born-again Christians. How many are born-again Christians tonight? 25% of born-again Christians in America read their Bibles every day. Now, God says, hey, Moses finished speaking the words and said to Joshua, it's your life. And to the children of Israel, set your hearts upon these things. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's alive. Let it be alive in your life. You say, well, it is, and I, I do read along in church, but read it every day. You say, the whole Bible? Yeah, read the whole Bible. I mean, not the whole Bible every day, but read through it, say, in a year. Take you 71 hours to read through the Bible at pulpit speed, just at the pace that I'm reading out loud. 12 minutes a day, 365 days a year, you'll have the Bible read. And then when you're done, read it again, then read it again, then read it again. Read it in a different version, take a new version. Till it soaks in you, and the principles are a part of your life. By this word you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. Then when the word of God is something that you read every day, you'll find that you'll know how to use it. You'll know how to pull certain principles out and use it for different areas of your life. Go through the Bible, but the real value is having the Bible go through you. It really doesn't matter how many times you go through the Bible, but how many times the Bible goes through you and becomes really part of your life. Then the Lord spoke to Moses the very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain of Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho. View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain. which you ascend to be gathered to your people, just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. So the command, go, look over the land, and go die. Because you trespass against uh, me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hollow me in the midst of the children of Israel, yet you shall see the land before you as though you shall, uh, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. God had already told Moses he was going to die on a few occasions. Now is the command to just go do it. And so what he will do in chapter 33 is go through the tribes of Israel, their characteristics, uh, their land allotments, so to speak, and then he'll go up in chapter 34 and he will die. Uh, God, again, I just want you to notice doesn't uh, pull any punches, just speaks very plainly and naturally. Go view the land and go die. And Moses was facing his death squarely. As I think every one of us should. God was preparing Moses for death. And I think all of us should realize, though I know it's hard to keep it in our our minds on a, on a daily basis because you have to live, but the fact that we're not immortal in this, in this body. This body will one day end. Now, as far as I have read world history, everybody who has ever lived eventually dies. And yet, when it happens in somebody's family, it, it, it seems almost like I can't believe this happened. 
I can't believe they die. Why would God allow this? Even though billions of people since the beginning of history have died, and it always happens that if you live, you die, and there's no guarantee, it seems to shock us. I think it's important in a household to talk about death. Not morbidly, not daily, let's talk about death again. (laughs) But to face it squarely, to have your house in order. To talk about the inevitability. To have a will. To not keep it. We don't talk about that. Don't even bring it up. Talk about it. Prepare. Have your house in order. And spiritually be prepared for the inevitable. Get your life right with God. In chapter 33, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel with before his death. Now this is the blessing that's very similar to Genesis chapter 49. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone from Mount Paran. He came with ten thousands of his saints from his right hand, came a fiery law for them, Yes, he loves the people. All the saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun, which means the upright one, a synonym for the nation of Israel. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. God's answering our prayer and watering our land outside. Uh, In these verses, verses 2, especially verse 2, He is uh, showing in a word picture a progression by using different mountains uh, from Mount Sinai to uh, Mount Seir, which is over in Edom, uh, to Mount Paran in northeast Sinai, how God was moving with his people by the agency of angels in the giving of the law up to the point where they were at. Now, all the tribes of Israel together, look at verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die Let his men be few. That's the prophecy for Reuben. Now let me show you some of these things here. Uh, He's going through the different tribes. Not all of them. He'll skip Simeon. But he'll go through the tribes and pray for them or confer a blessing on them, sort of like uh, uh, what Isaac did to the 12 sons of Isaac in Genesis chapter 49. And it's um, um, important to understand what he said. Let Reuben live and not die, or long live Reuben. Why? Well, notice where he's at. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. He doesn't have any protection to the east. He has enemies practically all around him. Because there were three tribes that settled east of the Jordan, they're very vulnerable. They still have uh, Edom. They still have uh, the Ammonites. They still have the Assyrians up north, the Babylonians far to the east, who could come in and, and destroy them. So the prayer is, listen, they're in a vulnerable spot. Long live Reuben. And if you remember, when the census of Israel was given, there were two different census, the fighting men of each tribe. The first census, there were about 65,000 fighting men from the tribe of Reuben. In the second census, there were only 63,000 fighting men. So they had dropped 2,000. So Moses said, you know, I hope you guys have a long and prosperous life. And then he said of Judah, Hear the Lord, the voice of Judah. Hear, Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Let his hands be sufficient for him. May you be a help against his enemies. This is sort of a prayer for the leadership of Judah. Judah took that southern section of the nation of Israel, eventually became uh, known as the southern kingdom, and the other ten tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, were down south, and The rest of the tribes were up north. They took a a huge allotment of land, and they started from Jerusalem all the way down to the Negev Desert. Then to Levi. And what a portion of land did the Levites have? None. They weren't given any land. They were given the priesthood. They had no land allotment. They were given the ministry. And of Levi, he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you tested at Massa, and with whom you contended at the waters of Mirabah, who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor did he acknowledge his brothers or know his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments, and they shall teach Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt sacrifice on your altar. Blessed be his substance, Lord, 
or bless his substance, Lord, and accept the work of his hands. Strike the loins of those who rise against him and of those who hate him, that they rise not again. So the Levites, they were the priestly tribe. The high priest came from there. They ministered in the tabernacle as representatives of the people to God. They copied and taught the law of God to the children of Israel. Now, verse 8. Let your thummim and your urim be with your holy one. What is that? What kind of a thing is that? Hey, uh, God bless you. God bless your urim and thummim. The Hebrew, or thurim and umim, means perfections or lights and perfections. That's what it means. Lights and perfections. Thumim and urim. They're in the Hebrew uh, male plural. And nobody knows exactly what they were, but they seemed to be stones that were used to determine the will of God somehow. They were kept in the high priest, uh, the, the breastplate of the high priest, around the breastplate, and uh, some think that one was a white stone, one was a black stone, and it was used to determine the will of God. Uh, it could be, as some say, that one stone would glow miraculously if it was a yes answer, or the other one would glow miraculously if it was a no. It seems that if you couldn't figure out the will of God any other way, you would go to the priest and he would use the thummim and the urim to find out what to do. Others think it was a black stone or a white stone. And the idea is that uh, if both stones are yes, you know, sort of like sanctified dice, if they both come up white uh, and, then, and both have to, then uh, it will be a yes answer. If one comes up white, the other comes up black, or yes and no, uh, it won't work. Whether it's one's yes and one no, or both are no, the answer is no. So you have a one in four possibility of getting a yes. The odds are sort of stacked against you. So you're praying about, should I marry that girl? Should I buy that house? Should I move to that city? Now, I know what you're thinking. Thinking, wouldn't it be great if today we had the Urim and the Thummim? And when we had a tough case, we could just go to Skip and he'd bring out the stones and, you know, he'd toss them and <laughs> yes or no, or they glow. And you'd know for certain. Wouldn't it be great to have a fleece like Gideon? Something concrete, you know, the will, God has spoken. Now, a lot of people love things, and, and I tell you, I am grateful that it's obscure. I'm grateful we don't know exactly what they were. I'm grateful they have never been found archaeologically because certainly somebody would bring them up and claim, I have God's will for your life. There was a guy on the radio some years ago. He claimed to be God's prophet. And, you know, prophets as such come with the wind and go with the wind from time to time. And so he was on the radio, and and he said, I can discern God's will for you. It was sort of like, a, you know, a spiritual horoscope. People would call in and they'd ask a question, should I buy this house? Should I marry this woman? Should I continue to date this person? What does the future hold for this? And the guy would say, now wait a minute, hold on. Wait, I'm getting an impression. Oh, God is speaking to me. Oh, and then he'll come up and say, God is saying this, this. And the phone lines would light up. People from all over the city would call because they thought, God is speaking to this guy I can find out what God wants for my life. Much easier to hear something like that than to just trust the Holy Spirit who lives in each believer. You have a guidance system. You don't need an Urim and a Thummim. You don't need sanctified dice. You don't need a guy on the radio as God's prophet. Now, God can use prophets. But the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You're his temple. So, much, so many times we want dir direction. We want uh, the plan. We have the director in our hearts. We have the plan giver living in us. And so we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. Oh, but the life of faith is so hard. Sure it is. You'd like to just have sight. You'd like to have the, you know, the clouds open and the video camera roll, the screen come down, and this is what you do tomorrow. But God calls you to trust. Nonetheless, at this particular juncture in their history, let your thummim and your urim be with your holy one. 
By the way, just so you know, that's what the Thummim and the Urim were, and yet the Mormons claim that Joseph Smith found the Urim and the Thummim, which were mystical eyeglasses that he wore to be able to read Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics given to him on the tablets by the angel Moroni at the Hill Cumorah in upstate New York. Now that's stretching it. But so is the entire tenet of the religion. Of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long. He shall dwell between his shoulders. Now you remember that Benjamin was one of the favorite sons of Jacob because Rachel was his favorite wife. He had uh, two wives and a couple concubines. And, and, um, but his tribal allotment was just north of Judah. It encompassed Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem uh, is at the junction of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah together. It sort of bisects it. And so it says, The beloved of the Lord shall dwell in safety by him who shelters him all the day long, and he dwells between his shoulders at that strategic spot. Now, the rabbis have taught that the Shekinah glory of God always has been in that place where the temple was in the tribe of Benjamin. And this is one of the scriptures that they love to point to. And of Joseph, he said, Blessed be the Lord in his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew, the deep lying beneath, with the precious fruits of the sun, with the precious produce of the months, with the best things of the ancient mountains, with the precious things of the everlasting hills, with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. His glory is like a firstborn bull, his Horns are like the horns of a wild ox. Together with them, you shall push the peoples to the ends of the earth. They are ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. Now, Joseph was the twin tribe. Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph born to him in Egypt. Sometimes the tribes of Israel are listed separately as Ephraim and Manasseh. Here they are combined as the tribe of Joseph, which are two tribes. And they together have a lot of land. And they have choice land, choice agricultural land and for raising animals, both to the east and the west of the Jordan River. And uh, Manasseh is the big yellow area on the map, and Ephraim is the red area. So uh, Manasseh had uh, a bigger portion. Uh, being the firstborn, he got the double portion. And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar, in your tents. They shall call the peoples to the mountains. They shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall partake of the abundance of the seas and of the hidden treasures in the sand. Zebulun uh, became seagoing people, uh, even though the yellow, uh, which is the tribe of Zebulun, looks like it's inland a little bit. They did have access to the coast, and Josephus and others tell us that they made glass at the seaport of Akko, and they were the adventurous sort. They would go out in the seas and uh, move across other nations, whereas Issachar, it says, in your tents. Uh, they shall partake of the abundance of the seeds, that would be Zebulun, and of the treasures hidden in the sands. That would be uh, Issachar. So uh, you have those who stay in the tents, stay at home and watch the fields, others who go out in the seas, and uh, you have the adventurous type, and you have the, you know, the, the farm type, who just is a homebody, and uh, two different types of people together. And of Gad, he said, oh, here's what Issachar occupied. Here's a picture of the plain of Gennesaret. This is the Sea of Galilee, one of the most fertile parts of the nation of Israel. And it's just still to this day produces all sorts of citrus and olives and uh, all from the tribe of Issachar. And then to Gad, he said, Gadzooks. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> of Gad, he said, blessed is he who enlarges Gad, he dwells as a lion, that is, he's swift. He tears the arm and the crown of his head. He provided the first part for himself because the lawgiver's portion was reserved there. And he came with the heads of the people. He administered justice of the Lord and of the judgments with Israel. East of the Jordan, Gad settled. Again, 
vulnerable. Uh, he took the territory of King Sihon and um, dwelt there uh, with the half-tribe of Manasseh. He had a huge portion of land as well. Then we come to the tribe of Dan. Dan is a lion's whelp. If you remember Genesis 49, Dan was called a snake. He was a serpent because he was crafty. Here he's called a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan up north. The tribal allotment was down south, and yet he was aggressive. And he took a foothold in the northern part of Israel in the area of Bashan. And uh, today, when you go on a tour to Israel, we'll take you to the northern part of Israel where Dan settled later on. So he kind of had a double portion on his own. Dan is the lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, satisfied with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the west and the south. So the west and the south of the Sea of Galilee, uh, which again, a beautiful agricultural area. The Hula Valley lies there today, and several of the kibbutzim is where Naphtali settled. And of Asher, he said, Asher means happy, by the way. Asher is most blessed or happy of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers. Let him dip his foot in oil. Your sandals shall be iron and bronze. As your days, so shall your strength be. This part of Israel is the most famous part for its olive production, and they would take the olives and crush the olive pits and make olive oil. That's the reference to oil. Now, there is a pipeline that runs through this area today, and uh, petroleum oil is carried through this area. And so some people think it's reference to that kind of oil, but it would seem more logically uh, that it refers to olive oil since that was the staple of the land back then. There is no one like the God... Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun, or the upright one, who rides the heavens to help you. And in his excellency on the clouds... The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say, Destroy. Then Israel shall dwell safely, the fountain of Jacob alone, in a land of grain and new wine. His heaven shall also drop dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help, the sword of your majesty. Your enemies shall submit to you, and you shall tread down their high places." Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo on the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western or the Mediterranean Sea. The south, the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar, where Moses was on the plains of Moab, and you can see it here in this cross-sectional map, it was elevated above the rest of Israel. Standing over the mountains of Moab, it would dip down toward the Dead Sea, the Jordan Valley. It would rise again, but not quite as far. On a clear day in the wintertime, you can stand on Mount Nebo and you can see Mount Hermon all the way to the far north, the mountain that's shown on the map to the far north. You can also see the undulating hills of Gilead. You can also see uh, the Samaritan Mountains. You can look down and you can see Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, all the way down into the Negev. You can see it all, all the way to the Mediterranean. Usually after a rain, it's wintertime, the air is, is, is sparkling. From Mount Nebo, you can see the entire layout of the land. And so there's Moses. He can see Jericho in front of him, but he can see the land spread out all around him. He looks it over, and the Lord says to him, This is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Now we have a problem. Who wrote the first five books of Moses? I gave it away. Moses. Moses was the author. The New Testament authors ascribe authorship to Moses. Jesus did too. And yet it says he died. And there's a description of his death and the mourning after his death. And so here come the skeptics. See, 
Moses didn't write this. How could he? He was dead. Did he get up and, you know, send it, you know, through a medium or something? After, how did it happen? Well, a couple explanations. Number one, I meet people who write out their whole funeral before they die. God told them he was going to die and how it would happen. He could have written this before he died. Closed it, closed the scroll, and died. I've had people say, now, when I die, I want this song sung, and then that song, and then I want this eulogy read, and I want you to say this, this, and this. Well, Moses could have done that. Perhaps a better explanation is that Moses wrote Deuteronomy, but keep in mind that there were no book transitions. He didn't say the book of Deuteronomy. He didn't say, he didn't say the book of Joshua. In the original, it was a scroll of books, and there was no space connection uh, or uh, distance between Deuteronomy and Joshua. It could be that what we're reading now is belongs in the first chapter of the book of Joshua, and this is an editorial comment by Joshua. Those, these are the books of Moses. Easily reconcilable. Anyway, he gets the panorama. He dies according to the word of the Lord, and, he's, and he buried him. Who buried him? God buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows his grave to this day. I don't have a slide of Moses' grave because nobody knows where he's buried. Nobody knows his grave. And I'm glad nobody knows where he's buried because don't you know, if people found his grave, they would put a shrine or a church and they would charge a couple dollars per person and make a racket out of it. Nobody knows where he is, he never entered the land. He saw it, but he wasn't allowed in, and nobody knows where he's buried. Now God knows where he's buried because God buried him. Why did God bury him? Moreover, why does it say that there was a dispute in the New Testament book of Jude with the devil over the body of Moses? It's interesting when we get to the New Testament that Jesus is transfigured on a high mountain. No doubt one of the high mountains that Moses saw as he looked over the Jordan. Moses appears with Elijah and Jesus Christ transfigured. He never entered the land in this lifetime, but he did then. The law couldn't bring him into the land, but the grace that comes through Jesus Christ could. There he is in the land on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Discuss. He got in. Only by grace in the New Testament. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor abated. The original Hebrew is he still had moisture to his face. He wasn't dried up. He still had a resilience, a vibrance. The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. The time's up, just about, and so I don't want to get too far into it like I could. I just want you to notice in that verse that when this figure died, they mourned. There was grief. There was wailing. I do speak to some people who feel like if they show emotion, if they show weeping or mourning, that somehow they're copping out as a Christian, not showing faith, and, you know, their wife or child dies, they, they you know, I, they, they just try to be strong. It's good to grieve. You need to grieve. It's healthy to grieve. There is such a thing as good grief. It's, healthy, it's unhealthy to hold it in, to pent it up. Now, in the ancient times, they did it 30 days when it was a national hero. And oftentimes they would tear their robe, they would throw dust in the air, they would wail. It was a loud emotional fervor. But then, the days ended. There's a time to mourn. There's a time when if you perpetually mourn, something's wrong. And I remember when my brother died, we had a time of mourning. Then there came a point in our family where the mourning drug on and on, and my brother stood up one day and he said, You know what? We've got to live our lives. We've got to move on. We've mourned. He's dead. He's buried. Now let's live. It's what we needed to hear. 
In the book of Joshua, Joshua will say the same thing. Moses is dead. Now let's go. He's buried. He's toast. He's history. It's a new generation. Let's move on now. We mourn, that's good. But now we have to live. Josephus records the mourning of the children of Israel. In Josephus' account, he said, Amidst the tears of the people, the women beating their breasts, the children giving way to uncontrolled wailing, Moses withdrew. At a certain point in his ascent, he made a sign to the weeping multitude to advance no further, taking with him only the elders, the high priest, Eleazar, and the general Joshua. At the top of the mountain, he dismissed the elders, and then he was embracing Eleazar and Joshua, still speaking to them, and a cloud suddenly stood over him, and he vanished into a deep valley. That's the legendary account as passed from the children of Israel as it was recorded by Josephus. So nobody knows where he was buried. He died at a good old age. They wept. Now, verse 9, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him. He did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent to him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all of his servants, and in all of his land, and by all that mighty power, all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. One of a kind. There's nobody like Moses. God spoke face to face, literally mouth to mouth, an intimate relationship in the Old Testament. And then Moses died. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. There is a physical death and there is a spiritual death. All of us will die physically unless the Lord comes and raptures us before that. And I'd love it. Now, he may, he may not. I expect him to come at any moment. I don't think anything's hindering that program from him to come and take his church at any moment. But he might not. And if he doesn't, we'll die physically. But some of you may die spiritually. You will die separation from this physical life. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will die eternally. You'll be separated from God forever. You say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, then be born again. Because you've already been born once. Proof is you're occupying a chair right now. But you have to be born spiritually to enjoy spiritual life. If you're born once, you'll die twice. If you're born twice, you'll die once. You don't have to be separated from God. You can have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And that's always the message. That's always the gospel. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, that's always the message the Bible points to. God has a plan. And God always tells people at every generation, don't go that way, go my way. Turn and come to know him. Father, we thank you for the book of Deuteronomy, all 22 studies of it. All the weeks we've spent examining this rehearsal of the covenant with the people of God who had seen miraculous signs. And yet, with all they had seen and heard, they would rebel. You would punish them, and yet you would restore them and revive them again. Lord, I pray that if we're not walking closely with you, that you would revive our own hearts. Lord, I pray that if we see the judgment coming, but we're not right with God, that tonight would be a night of turning and repentance to know the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name, amen.